Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In my last audio, I took up the first 29 verses of Mark in which we discussed the beheading of John the Baptist. We are now back up at Capernaum. John the Baptist was beheaded, of course, down at Macarius, down near the Dead Sea. We're back up at Capernaum, and we see now that the apostles are returning from their mission journey that Jesus had sent them out on. Verse 30 in Mark 6 says this, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. The parallel We have three parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is getting ready to tell us. We're going to get ready to, to learn about the feeding of the 5,000. And that incident is one of only two incidents that's recorded in, all four, recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, in the Matthew parallel, Matthew 14, 13, it says when Jesus heard about it, when he heard about Herod being beheaded, so he, he knew that Herod had been beheaded. He withdrew from Capernaum and went by boat, went from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. In Mark 6, 31 through 32, Jesus says this, He, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. And that rest is a detail that's given here, and I think in Luke also. That was one of the explicit explicit purposes for getting away. But also it could be getting away because of the death of John the Baptist. He might have needed to spend some time talking with his disciples about that unfortunate event. It might be because he wanted to get away from the heat, from the fact that the Pharisees were following him around and looking to get him in trouble. And since John the Baptist had been killed and John the Baptist is preaching in the name of Jesus, it'd be likely that Jesus would be in danger. So they, they get in a boat and they head out for a remote place, Mark says. For many people were coming and going, they did not, not even have time to eat. Again, that's the motive of rest. They needed to rest. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place place. Now we read in Matthew 14:13 that when the crowds heard that Jesus had withdrawn from them in a boat, they followed him on foot from the towns. And we're going to see in just a minute that the remote place they went to was Bethsaida, which is on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is on the northwest shore. The people went from Capernaum to Bethsaida by foot while the, Jesus and his disciples went by boat. Now let me summarize some of the possible reasons that Jesus left for that remote place near Bethsaida. I've already mentioned some. I'm going to mention some more here. First of all, as A.T. Robertson points out, it could be because of the jealousy of Herod Antipas. Herod would have heard of Jesus through John the Baptist, of course, through his many conversations with John the Baptist. And Herod might then think, well, John the Baptist is out of the way. Now I need to get Jesus out of the way. Now, Jesus was not afraid of death, obviously. But he knew his time had not yet come, so he had to prudently avoid danger, and this shows that it's not cowardly or sinful to prudently avoid danger. So he's one possible reason he's left to Bethsaida, in, 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 to the wilderness around Bethsaida, is he's trying to avoid heat from Herod Antipas. Second possible reason is the fanaticism of his would-be followers in Galilee, as Robertson points out. We see in one place he was trying to get to Jairus' house, and it says the crowd's crushed him. That's the word that one of the synoptics used, crushed him. And they were clamoring for healing and so forth, and they were more than willing to proclaim him as Messiah. That was premature. He wasn't ready. He hadn't trained his disciples yet. The third possibility of leaving uh, to a remote place 
is the hostility of the Jewish rulers. We've already mentioned the hostility of Herod Antipas. But how about the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were trying to get him too. They didn't like all this activity up here, so he might have been trying to avoid them. It could be that the summer that was approaching was hot. The period that was being described was just before Passover. We read in one of the four Gospels here. I think it's John. And, and Robertson says, well, that means that Passover's in the spring, so it, it's getting to be hot, and maybe we need to get away to a cool place because a mountainous area near Bethsaida would be cool. The fifth reason is that Jesus wanted his disciples, or the disciples of John, actually, to have refreshment and rest, not just his disciples. The disciples had come uh, up to tell Jesus of the news of John the Baptist's death and also his own, and Jesus' own disciples had come back from their preaching tour. And so, as I just finished reading in verse 31 in Mark, Jesus says, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. So that's the fifth reason. Sixth reason, they wanted to have time to grieve over John the Baptist's death. That's Gill suggests that one. And the seventh reason, they wanted to have time to digest the news of the spread of his kingdom. Because remember, the apostles had come back from their first journey and they were reporting to Jesus all that had happened. And they didn't have a lot of time there with all the crowds around, so maybe they wanted to get alone so they could do a post-op, a post-mortem. Not a post-mortem, that's a bad word. But do a review of their journeys there, a shakedown, if you will, to see things they could do better, things that they did well, and so forth. Now we go to Mark chapter 6, verse 33 and 34. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. In other words, when they got in the boat, many of the people in Capernaum said, Oh my gosh, they're leaving. So people ran there by land from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. I've already mentioned this. They went by land. So as he stepped ashore, this is ashore near Bethsaida, he saw a huge crowd and had compassion on them. So he's trying to get away from them, but as soon as he sees them, he says, you know, they came all the way by foot. And Jesus was full of compassion. They were sheep without a shepherd. They were in the wilderness now. They had no rabbis teaching them. The Pharisees were no rabbis. They had no spiritual leaders. They had no guidance. And he had compassion on them. Then he began to teach them many things. So... Jesus was the ultimate teacher, the ultimate rabbi. How did the people get there ahead of Jesus? Perhaps a strong headwind slowed the boat, so the people had more time to go to get to Bethsaida. If you look on the map, it's not that far by foot. It's not about that far by boat either, but the boat's not going to be going fast, and the people are, could easily have beaten the boat. Now, Jesus and his disciples had tried to be secretive to get away. Didn't do any good. They were spotted, and there are the crowds again. Mark only mentions that Jesus, after feeling compassion, did the teaching. Matthew only mentions healing. Matthew 14, 14, as he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd, felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. Luke mentions both. And I mention this is because Jesus did two things in his ministry that's mentioned over and over again, teaching and healing. Why should we create a false dichotomy between those two things and say, oh, we're charismatic and all we do is healing, or oh, we're cessationists and all we do is teaching? Nonsense. Follow our master and do both. Teach and heal. Pray for healing. Well, not everybody gets healed, so we're going to pray that nobody gets healed? Well, how about teaching? You know, not everybody learns the word either or accepts the word. Do we stop teaching? Mark 6, verse 35 through 37. When it was already late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness and it is already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he, Jesus, responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 
200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat. Now, why did Jesus say give them something to eat? He knew that the, the disciples didn't have anything to eat. Well, the reason was is because he was testing them. We can find this out explicitly in the parallel passage in John. In John chapter 6, verse 5, we read, He, Jesus, asked this to test him, to test Philip, who had asked, where are we going to get all this bread? That, the detail of Philip being the one and asking, that was in John. And, of course, Philip's logically to be talking about Jesus because Philip was from Bethsaida, and that's near where they were in the mountain, in the mountainous region outside of Bethsaida. And so G, Philip asked the logical question, where in the world are we going to get bread so these people can eat after Jesus told him to? Well, actually, Jesus asked Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He deliberately provoked Philip with the, with the thought of having to buy all that bread, which was impossible. It says he asked this to test him, for he himself knew he, what he was going to do. Jesus already knew what he was going, he was going to feed those 5,000, but he wanted to use this as a teaching opportunity, a testing opportunity to increase his disciples' faith. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. 200 denarii, a lot of money, 200 days' wages, a lot of money. And they didn't have a lot of money, and so Philip's saying, we don't have enough money, it's going to cost us a fortune. And not to mention the fact there's nowhere to buy it. Where are you going to buy bread in the middle of the wilderness? So Jesus presented Philip with an impossible situation. And how many times, application time here, how many times does Jesus present you with a situation that there is absolutely no human solution to? Well, when that happens, just think to yourself, this is a test of my faith. i got to believe when I can't see. I cannot see the answer here. But Jesus always delivers his people, but you've got to trust him. That word test is confusing in Greek and in English and in Chinese. There is one word for both test and to tempt, which is very confusing. God can test us, but he can never tempt us, even though he is using the same word. And English is actually a little bit better because we can split out the word between test and tempt. Test actually means to tempt as well as to test. To test means to put somebody in a hard situation with the purpose of making them stronger. To tempt means to put somebody in a bad situation for the purpose of destroying him. The devil tempts us. Jesus and God test us. Now, John Gill has an interesting point here. He says there were two evenings, according to the Jewish reckoning. One right after noon when the sun started to decline, and then one at dusk when the sun started to go below the horizon. So if this is so, in Matthew 14, verse 15, where it says this, When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, The place of the wilderness is already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. It would make sense to say this is the first evening right after noon, but that would give, in the afternoon sometime, that would give the people time to go into Bethsaida and buy food. But if it's the sunset evening, there wouldn't be time to go into the village and buy food. All that. And by the way, it was 5,000 people Counting men alone, not counting the women and children. So let's say there's 10,000 people. The average size, the size of Bethsaida and Capernaum was about two to 3,000. We're talking about two, two towns worth, two cities worth of people sitting out there in the wilderness. They couldn't go into the city and buy food. It would overwhelm them. Plus, if, it was, if this was the, evening, the second evening, it, there wouldn't be time to go into the village to buy food. The second evening is mentioned in Matthew 14:23. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So we can deduce from all this that this was sometime in the afternoon. While the disciples thought there's still a chance, we can send them away into the villages around to buy food. 
they still got time to get there before nightfall. But actually, it's pretty impractical because there were so many of them to do it. So I'm assuming this is the first evening here when the disciples came to Jesus and presented their logistical problem. Notice the fact that the, that the crowds were even there without food showed that they longed to hear Jesus so much that they left their homes to go to a wilderness without food. They didn't care. They just wanted to see Jesus. Now, of course, John Gill says, well, see, they only wanted to get healing. They had bad motives. I don't know why commentators keep saying that. What would you do if you were hungry and starved and spiritually oppressed by Pharisees and you didn't have any money and you didn't have any pension plan, you didn't have any Social Security, and you're sick? Oh, you're just seeking Jesus for the healing, not for the teaching. As I've pointed out many times, Jesus did both. He didn't emphasize one over the other. Matthew, in the parallel passage in verse 16, says, They don't need to go away. Jesus told the disciple, you give them something to eat. Again, that's the same thing as him asking Philip, why don't you give them something to eat? Why don't you go out and get something for them to eat? Actually, what he asked was, he says, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He knew he, there was no place to buy bread. And then Jesus more explicitly challenges them here in Matthew 14, says, you give them something to eat. And of course, he knew there was nowhere that they didn't have the, the food to feed them. There was no place to buy it, and they didn't have it with them. He was trying to exercise their faith. All right, so we read now in Mark 6:38. he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. When they found out, they said five and two fish. And in John, we read an extra detail, John 6, verses 8 through 9, verse 9. There's a boy here. Andrew was the one talking to Jesus. And Andrew said, Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? The boy was either a vendor that was following the crowd trying to make some money, or he might have been one of the crowd. Some people even speculate he might have been one of the apostolic band who were traveling around ministering and that this would show how cheaply the disciples were living. I don't think so. I just think that's a, either a vendor or a member of the crowd. But at any rate, they got the bad news. Five loaves and two fish. That's not enough, obviously, for 5,000 people plus women, women and children. Moving on to Mark chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties. The grass was green because it was almost spring. They sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties. Why did the disciples divide them out into fifties and hundreds? So they could distribute the food easier. Well, actually, Jesus knew that he was going to have the food to distribute. So he told the, the disciples to sit them down in fifties and hundreds so that he could manage the distribution of the food to all these people. Everybody could see who's next, who's getting the food. The miracle would be obvious. It would be obvious that there's a bunch of bread coming from the disciples, the bread and fish coming from the disciples' area, and it's being distributed to all these people so people could see the miracle better. So that's why he did that. Mark 6, verse 41 through 44, continues the narrative. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. Kept giving. That shows us a continuous miracle going on here. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. All four Gospels recorded this detail that everyone ate. This is to show that the bread and the fish indeed had to be multiplied for everyone to eat. It says, blessed. The, act, the Greek does not have any, at any time, 
things being blessed, like bless the food, please bless the food. No, it's either you bless God or you bless people. If we bless God, we're praising him. If God blesses us, he's making us happy. But never is food blessed. The Home of Christian Study Bible says bless, bless the food. That's a loose translation. It's a minor point. Now let's talk about, let's make an application here. Jesus already, when he saw the crowds upon arriving in the wilderness near Bethsaida, he had compassion on them and he taught them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And now he's fed them. And of course, I think it's in Luke, it says he healed them. So here you see Jesus taking care of their spiritual needs. He's taking care of their physical needs, both their stomachs because they didn't have food and their bodies because they were sick. Christianity is not a Gnostic religion. Jesus takes care of the whole man like evangelicals love to talk about, the whole man they used to anyway. Everything, not just the spirit. And again, people who de-emphasize healing because they're worried about all the fakes that are out there, they need to realize Jesus ain't no fake. He healed people who were sick and who needed who needed him in that area. It, so we have Jesus taking care of the people's bodies and taking care of their spiritual life. doesn't mention their souls, their psychological needs, their emotional needs, but you know that's all included in that. Jesus takes care of everything. Now we need to talk about this picking up of 12 baskets. This is an interesting thing to me because I've always wondered, well, 5,000 people, leftovers or 12 baskets? It could be, but it just seems funny that there were 12 baskets. There's 12 apostles, there's 12 baskets, and that seems like an awful lot of people just to have 12 baskets of leftovers. The first question we ought to ask is, how did the apostles end up with 12 baskets? How, How did they have so many baskets in the wilderness? But it's not likely that they had them themselves, John Gill says. But Gill's theory is that some people in the crowd lent them to the apostles. It would, out of all those people, 12, it would not be so hard to find 12 apostles, uh, 12 baskets. Now, why did Jews carry their baskets with them personally? There's some possible reasons. They had a custom, actually, of carrying straw and hay in baskets, according to John Gill and Adam Clark. This was to memorialize their slavery in Egypt. They also carried baskets because they were afraid of being polluted by heathen people's meat, so they would carry their own provisions with them. They did in this case. They they didn't have any food, but they normally carried baskets for that reason, and sometimes they carried baskets to have hay to sleep on. So it was a common thing for people in the crowd to have baskets. Now, I think that what probably happened here is that the apostles barred the 12 baskets, and then they picked up leftovers. Now, the question is, Did they pick up the leftovers of all 5,000 people, or did they pick up their leftovers? It makes more sense to me that they picked up their leftovers, and that others in the crowd have then picked up their own leftovers, because I can't imagine 12 people going through a place where there were 5,000 people and picking up stuff and ended up putting, putting it in 12 baskets. I don't think so. That seems like a small amount of abundance superabundance for 5,000 people is not a small amount for 12 people. And again, the point of this is to show what an incredible miracle it was. Now, if I'm right about this, that means that if everybody's picking up their own leftovers, that means there was an even bigger abundance than just 12 baskets full. But be that as it may, the point is is that this picking up of the fragment showed that there was a miracle. And incidentally, Jews required that bread that fell to the ground be picked up because bread was regarded as a gift from God. It was considered not respectful, if you will, to leave the bread on the ground. Now, there were 5,000 people here. Matthew tells us, well, actually, all four Gospels say that everyone ate, so everyone saw. 
5,000 people, that's a lot of witnesses. And that's why the Jews never claimed he didn't do miracles, because there were so many witnesses around. Moving on to Mark chapter 6, verses, well, we're not going to go any further. We're going to stop here in Mark 6, verse 44. We're finished with Mark. Let's look, pick up one more detail in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21. Now, those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Matthew's the only gospel writer who mentions the fact that the 5,000 did not include women and children. That's probably because he's a Jewish guy writing to Jews who did not permit women and children to eat publicly with them. And so he mentioned that detail. That's, they, were normal, they were used to that, counting numbers without women and children. Now, there was probably not a lot of women and children there because this was, again, right around the time of the Passover, as we learned from John, and only uh, uh, males were required to go to the approaching festival, so it could have been the people on the, on the march there, on the move, were mostly men. But anyway, we know it's more than 5,000 people who ate that bread. And so end of our discussion of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. We'll take up Mark chapter 6, verse 47 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this audio.